if you're just joining us, we, we've been going through this series, and uh, we're looking at the entire book of Judges, and Judges in itself, as we look at it, is a picture and a story of God's people turning away from God and going from bad to worse to worser, um, turning away from ultimately their one true loving God. However, what we've been able to see in the last two weeks, and we'll see again today, is that God begins to continue in the midst of the chaotic lives of his people. And them turning his back against them, that, they, that God continues to show forth his mercy. And, and then this morning's message is another picture of how God relentlessly offers his mercy to those who don't deserve it or don't want it. That he continues to enter into their life. And so the character that we're introduced today is, if you're kind of familiar with Judges, at some level you've heard of a man named Gideon. And so today is part one of Gideon. Um, next week will be part two. So if you're, if you're used to the Gideon story of, of God shrinking his army down, that's, that's going to be next week. Today is we get a, uh, a chance to meet Gideon and ultimately see his conversion and so forth. And so let's go. Um, would you guys pray with me? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word so we can understand it. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the work of your son Jesus. And as always, help us co- to start our life, continue in our lives, Lord, in his presence, to understand his work, to understand that our righteousness, Lord, comes from him, that your love is given to us through him. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word, that we may understand it, that we may understand what does it mean for us today. How do we live, Lord, in light of who you are? Uh, give us grace that would humble us and grace that would give us boldness, Lord, to be the people in who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We all have a friend or maybe we've been that friend, but we all have or have had a friend that is in a relationship that is unhealthy, right? Like they're with that person, and you know they shouldn't be with that person, and you hope that they, they break up. And then when they finally break up, you're excited. You're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm glad. I've been wanting to tell you what I really thought about them. Then you tell them all the things that you, you thought about them. And then only to find out a few weeks later that what? They're, they're back together. And you're like, are you serious? And then they break up. And you're like, oh, this time was the one. And then they're back together. Like, are you serious? Like, are you going to keep taking this dude back? I feel this way with judges. I feel like God is like the, the good person in this. And God's just like, ah, I know, but I'm going to take him back. We're like, serious, God? Are you going to take Tim back? Like, you're better than them, right? Don't you want to say that to God? Like, you could do way better, God. Like, go, go to a different people. Like, choose somebody else because the Israelites, they clearly don't get it. And yet God keeps taking them back. They cry out to God, and God's like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Come back again. And that's exactly what happens here in chapter 6, where we concluded last week. Remember, there was all the nasty sword and peg and, and, and everything through the, through the, through the head. Um, and then there was a, it was a period of rest. Well, the refrain happens again, chapter 6, verse 1. We've heard it before. We'll hear it again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so the cycle goes like this. The people of God sin. They do what's evil, what we just heard. And then God goes, okay, I'm going to allow the oppressor to go ahead and beat you guys up. And the oppressor comes in, and then they go, okay, we don't want this anymore. And then they call out to God, they cry out to God, and then God brings a deliverer. The deliverer comes, usually through, like, with a sword or a peg or something like that. And then God has rest in the land. And that's usually how it goes. And um, let's just see, uh, well, it's going to go like that again here. (laughs) What we have is now they've sinned against the Lord, and now the oppressors are the Midianites. And the Midianites do something a little different. Verse 2, and the hand of the Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Alchemites and the people from the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour 
the produce of the land, far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. Um, for they, they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. So the picture here is not that the Midianites came in and wanted political power. Like, this is sheer economical um, exploitation. Like, we want your money. We want, you, we want to take everything that you have. And the money in that day were the crops. And so the Israelites would work and till the ground and the crops would come up. And then the big bad Midianites would come in and they would take over. And this is not like eminent domain, if you're familiar with that, where uh, somebody would come in and take your building. At least you get a check, right? This is like gentrification at its worst. People moving in and pushing the people who live there completely out and taking the resources of the land for themselves. Or... or, or it, Think of it this way, a little bit more juvenile. This is the bully in school. Like you're in cafeteria and you're trying to eat your food and the bully's like, give me your food. And you're like, no, I want my little Debbie's. And he's like, give them to me, right? <laughs> this, this, is exactly, this is exactly what's happening here. And the Midianites come in and they just take, they take everything to the point where the narrative says that they would come in with their families. They would put tents down. They'd bring their animals and like, eat all this, right? And they would eat it and go, like, all right, we're going to go to the next one. Like that's exactly how they, they were. So the Israelites, they were bullied. All the way to the point where they didn't even live in the land. It says that they moved into dens and caves in the mountains. Like they were cavemen now, living in the dens, and they're afraid. They're afraid of the Midianites, and this happened for seven years. What do you do when you can't do anything? Because there's nothing they can do at this moment. So what do you do when you're in a particular point that you can't do anything? Whether you're in a circumstance that you're there because of the consequences of your own sin or you're in circumstances that you're there not because of consequences of your personal sin, but just a broken world in general. Whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whatever it may be, what do you do in that moment? What we've seen so far with the people of Israel is that they cry out to God. Like, like here's the moment where they, they cry out to God. Verse 6, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, uh, cried out for help to the Lord. Verse 7, and when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet. Now, hold on for a second. Like at this moment, if this is the relationship, if we go back to that scene, and this is your friend, you're going, do not take him back. He's calling, girl, what should I do? Don't, don't answer it. He just texts me and said, don't answer it, right? But what happens is there's always a guy on the other end, and he's doing the butt baby. And the butt baby, but baby, but baby, but you did this, but baby, right? And when it gets to the, the butt baby, that's like the last resort. And now God's like, I don't know if I'm going to answer this. I don't know. Should I answer it? And then, and then Israel keeps pulling the, but baby, remember? Remember? Remember that good time? Remember we, we crossed the Red Sea? Like, remember that? <laughs> right? There's, 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 yeah, we did. I did do that. Yeah, you know. And then, and then it's like, okay, now's the time where normally in the cycles that we've gone through is that God would raise up a deliverer, but he doesn't first bring a deliverer. The first thing he does here that it, that it, it says here is that he brings a prophet. And verse 8 says, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he began to speak to them. Why would God send a prophet? Here's why. Because sometimes we need to be confronted and convicted by God's word, ultimately to reveal to us that oftentimes the circumstances that we find ourselves in are in direct consequence of our own actions. So essentially, he needed to remind them, there's a reason why you're in this situation. There's a reason why this pattern continues in your life. And, he, and the way he does it first is he brings a prophet to convict them by the word, the word of God. That's something that we have to expose ourselves to, to know who God is and what he's doing in this world. Not just what he's doing in our own little hearts, but who, what is he like? 
What does the Bible reveal to us about this God and about this world? And God has a, a specific purpose for his word. In fact, read with me here in Isaiah 55, 11 and 10. Here's what Isaiah says on behalf of God. For as the rain and the snow, as the, for the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Meaning God's word is doing something when it, you're exposed to it when it actually enters into the waters of your life, when it's applied to your daily activities in every area that you live. And then, then, then there's more that, that the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, meaning it actually even penetrates our heart. Like the word matters. So God sends a prophet, and what the prophet begins to communicate is what God had already done for them. Thus says the Lord, verse 8, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. He goes, I did this for you. I rescued you. I came in. I showed you mercy. I extended grace to you. I was your God, and you were supposed to be my people, but you're not doing it. You disobeyed me. And so he brings this conviction by his word. And, and you, you would think that, well, maybe there was repentance on Israel's part, right? Didn't, wasn't last week there was a repentance? They turned. And the week before that, didn't they turn? But we had to ask the question, was it truly repentance, right? Here's what I mean, and I'm going to spend a section on this and talking about repentance, is their actions never really change. We have to understand that our, our repentance is not always expressed through our tears as it is mostly through our action. Just because we're sad and we're sorrowful doesn't necessarily mean that there's true repentance that's happening in our lives, there's legitimate change that's happening, that there's a transformation that is happening in the deep recesses of our hearts and our souls that are making us see God as more worthy than anything else that we can imagine. And we turn from our ways towards him. That, that's not necessarily what's happening when it comes to repentance. Here's what I mean by this. There's a difference between worldly repentance and then godly repentance. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And he says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Um, here, here's what he's talking about here when it comes to repentance. We actually repent, I would say, in rather religious ways. And when I say religious, I mean that in a negative or pejorative way, meaning we, we would be totally content with the discipleship in our own lives and also the discipleship of the people we lead if we could just get them or ourselves to stop sinning. Like, whatever the sin is, if I can just get you to stop, then you're good. Like, you're a good Christian. When really all we're looking at is saying you're a really moral person. As if some way we believe that being moral and being Christian are synonymous with one another every time. Because the truth is, you can actually be very moral and not really understand the gospel. However, you can never really understand the gospel without understanding morality. When Paul says here, and he says goes deeper into repentance, he goes, there's a way to have godly sorrow and regret, and there's a way to have worldly sorrow and regret. And first we start with the worldly sorrow and regret. It's usually self-centered. 
It's usually you repenting of the consequences of sin, not sin itself. It's usually, I, it's the approval of the world that I'm afraid of losing. And so therefore, I will confess or I will repent because I hurt somebody and I want their approval. Um, I, want, I want them to like me or I'm going to lose something and therefore I will change whatever behaviors it is that cause this strife. It's not the sin that you hate, it's the consequences of it and the fear of losing approval of somebody else. And so we'll change our whole lives, really behavior modification. Whereas that when Paul talks about godly sorrow, like you're really sorrowful over the sin. However, it's no longer self-centered about you and how the person views you, it's about God. And not the approval from the world, but the approval of God. That every single time we sin, that the acceptance and approval that God has extended us through grace, that when we sin and we don't repent, we are distancing ourselves from experiencing and walking and living and resting in that approval, where we find our hope and identity and meaning and so forth. And so what happens when you repent here is you do hate the sin because you know what it does with your relationship with God. You know that it offends and it spurns the one who at infinite cost loves you and he gave himself for you. And those are radically different things. Let me take a little further and give you an example. So years ago, I was a young Christian, and I was in this study, and we were going through uh, biblical repentance. And I thought I got it. You know, God saved me. I repent for my sin. I believe in Jesus. And, and, um, and as we're reading through this kind of workbook that we we're going through, there was a line that says Christians don't only repent of the things they do wrong, but the reasons of why they do right. <clears throat> and I was like, that's silly. Who would ever repent of doing right? Like, isn't that the goal, right? And, and then um, the guy who was leading it was explaining it to me and understanding, no, your heart needs to be transformed. And he, and he brought it from this behavior modification realm to actually transformation of my heart. And then I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. And mind you, I'm, I'm a young 20-something, um, and my biggest issue at that time, to me, the biggest issue I had is if, if God can help me in my, sexual, like my sexuality and sexual sin, that's the only sin I had. And if God can fix that, I'll be fine. That's what I thought, right? <laughs> Things have since changed. <laughs> There's, there, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. And I said, if that's true, that means I've never repented in a godly way from sexual sin. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, I took the worldly part, the comfort and approval from women, and then I said I trusted in Jesus, but I bypassed the gospel and I bypassed God, and then now my actions changed to now my approval and comfort came from my accountability buddy. Because ultimately, when he would ask me, did you sin in this way, if I could say no, he would return and go, good job, you're doing really good. And then I begin to think, oh, I am doing really good. But my motivations were never because of God. It was going, I don't want to be seen as a bad Christian. Um, over here, it was going, I don't, I don't know what I was going for over here. I'm young um, um, over, <laughs> or human, right? And then over here, it's like, I don't want to be seen as a good Christian. It became about how people would perceive me, not realizing I've already been accepted in love in God. And that I don't, I don't earn my approval. I work from the approval that I have in, in Jesus. And so repentance at its core goes down to us understanding that it's always God-centered. It's always about a right relationship with him. Not that we could ever lose it, but because we can't lose it, because he stands ready to forgive us, we repent, and it begins to transform our heart, and then we begin to rest in the beauty of the gospel. So a simple definition of repentance is not just turning from sin. We have it here. It's a change of mind about sinning and about God, which results in turning from sin to God, meaning it's not just first behavior change. There is a belief intellectually. And then it gets into the gut and our belief and understanding who God is that it always results in an action. And it's not that we don't have moral lapse and we don't fail and we don't stumble. We are all sinners and we will continue to be sinners. 
It's just when you have long patterns in your life of not turning consistently to God and receiving the joy that he has, what happens is you just have this worldly sorrow, you cry out to God and hope that he will deliver you. That's what Israel was at. Like they didn't have this true repentance. And you would think after now God reminding him of his word, I'm the one who delivers you. I'm the one who's your judge. I'm the one who's your king. I'm the one who was gracious. I'm the one who's been your provision. I'm the one who's been your protection. You would think at this moment now, they'd go, you're right, Lord. You're right. We're done. We want to rededicate our lives to you. And, and whatever they would have done at that time, they would have walked down aisles that have wrote their sin on a note card or something, thrown it in the fire. It's gone. Nailed it to the cross. Whatever, whatever they would have done, right? They would have had something like that. But that, that's not what happens. In fact, God begins to move in spite of them. Read with me in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and said underneath the terebinth of Orpha, which belonged to Joaz the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now here's what happens. You see what God's already doing? God's about to raise up a judge. He's about to raise up Gideon. But I want to point out something about God's character. God convicts. He confronts them with the word. And you would think at this moment, he's going to wait for them to repent, and then he would display his mercy. But he doesn't. Which shows us something about how good God is. That our God himself is not someone who sets his saving love on us when we turn to him, but the opposite. We only turn to him because he's already set his saving love on us. That he didn't wait for them to repent. He didn't wait for them to say a prayer. He didn't wait for them to walk down an aisle. He already began to move and working now through the delivering um, his people through this man named Gideon. And we find Gideon where? In a cave. He's doing what he's, what he's supposed to be doing, um, hiding. And the reason why he's hiding because he's afraid. Remember the Midianites? They're bullying everybody, taking all the little Debbies. And so he finds himself now in this cave. Now, what he's doing here is he's taking the wheat, and what they would do in the threshing floor is you would normally have a threshing floor. You would throw the wheat in the air, and then you would do it in the wide open. So the wind would take the wheat and take away the chaff and so forth. But he's doing it in a wine press. And a wine press would have been a hole that was dug out where they would usually just step on grapes to make wine, for whatever reason, if you're into that sort of thing. And then, and then he finds himself there hiding, um, doing his job. By no means did he think that God's going to show up. But that's exactly what happens here. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and has given us into the hand of Midian. Don't we find ourselves where Gideon's at? But Gideon is like, I'm not having it. I mean, yeah, you say you're God and you say there's a God, but I mean, oh, man, like, have you seen our situation? Like, we're in caves. <laughs> Things are not good. People are eating our food. People are beating us up. It's been seven years. And, and you know, our, our fathers, they, they talked about this God, and they talked about how this God had saved them, had delivered them, and this, this God had redeemed them out of Egypt. And I don't see any of those things happening now. Have you ever been there? Whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ or whether you're not, We've all been in situations where we're going like, well, God, will you show up today? Like, is there a way that you can move now? Because I feel like, like Gideon, we find ourselves in situations where the way that we relate to God's actions is that we, we only relate to him in the rearview mirrors of our life. Like, there was a moment in time in college where he did that. It was awesome. There was a moment when I was a teenager. There was a moment in the beginning of our marriage where it seemed like it was that, that way. There, there was a moment a while back, or at worst, 
even worse than that, we find ourselves only experiencing God through the rearview mirrors of somebody else's life. My friend talks about that. He, he seemed to redeem their marriage, but he didn't redeem mine. He seemed to got them, got them the job, but he didn't get mine. I'm still sick. I still feel the, the physical pains, but my friend doesn't. I don't know. I seem, I seem like God does things. I heard that he does things, but I don't know if he's ever showed up for me that way. And that's where Gideon's at right now. He's in that moment where he's questioning. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. The thing about it is I don't think he realizes he's talking to God. And, and that's going to come clear here. But I, I think we should sit there and realize, what is, wh- how does God respond to him? Well, God could have responded like, Gideon, please, right? I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> like, you're saying you don't know where he is. I'm here, right? He could have said that. Not everybody gets to hear from God that way. Um, he could have said, your people are in this situation because of their sin. That would have been truthful. But it seems like the way God works is sometimes he leads with truth and he backfills with grace. And sometimes he leads with grace and he backfills with truth. But truth and grace are always together. In this case, he chooses to move in grace. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Now, now, now here's what happens next. You see how God just comes to him and says, you know what? I'm just going to speak to you the way that I see you. I'm not going to confront you. I'm just going to speak to you the way I see you. Because you know what? Sometimes we need God to tell us what we look like through his lens. We need to see ourselves in the way that God sees us. We need to act in a certain way in the way that God sees us. For some of us, we think we're, we're way up here, and God's like, nah, bro, you're down here, <laughs> right? And for some of us, we think we're way down here, and God's like, wait, let me lift you up. And God looks at me first earlier, do you hear what he called me? He says, man of valor. Man of valor? Are you, he's hiding in a cave. He's afraid of his lunch getting taken, Right? Debo's on the block. I'm about to tuck mine in, right? Like, like some, something's happening that God all of a sudden sees him as a man of valor. You know what it is? God sees us how we ought to be. He sees us how we will be. He sees us how we would be if we rested in him. It's not that God is looking and getting and going, oh, look at all the potential you have. He's like, no, no, no. Your potential is in me. He said, if I am with you, whatever it is that I call you to, you will be able to do it. And that's not just a call to Gideon. That is every single man, woman, and child that trusts in God. That whatever it is that God has called you to do, whatever um, it is in relationships, whatever it is in your vocation, whatever it is that God's called you to do, whatever obedience that God has called you to do, he supplies his spirit just enough for you to be able to do it if you rest and trust in him. Your confidence is not in your performance. Your confidence is in him. And that's unwavering and it doesn't change. Because he sets his love on us. So he looks at Gideon and he goes, Gideon, you're, you're, you're fine. You're, trust me, I'm going to be with you. And Gideon's like, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, our tribe's not even good. And um, I'm the weakest in my family, right, which we're going to see later. Wasn't really true. Um, but he's just kind of crying out, like, God, I don't know. And yet God doesn't stop. He continues to, to speak with him. Verse 15, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm at least... I'm the least in my father's house, verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and, um, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. You see how God comes to his questions? God doesn't always give us the answers to our questions. Hear me. He doesn't always answer the prayers in which we want, but he always gives us himself. And sometimes the very presence of God, to hear the words that I will be with you, is what God gives us to comfort us in our moments of weakness, in our situations of questioning. There's something else that happens here. I believe this is the conversion of Gideon. 
Um, if, if you go back, it's, uh, and, and it comes with how he sees God, like in any conversion. It's not about what we're doing. In the conversion, when it comes to knowing God, it's about how we see him, that he goes from a concept to being a reality in our lives. Verse 13, he responds to him and says this way. He says, please, sir, right? Sir was something you would use to just anybody who had authority. So when he first heard the word of God, he's just like, I don't know who this is. I know it's an authority. Uh, you're like an angel or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm in a cave, bro. Things are not that good. And so he's just like, sir. He doesn't realize it's God that's speaking to him. Well, then when you jump down to verse 15, he now says when he says Lord, that word there is Adonai, which means the Lord of the world. So he's kind of getting a little bit closer. I mean, there's a point where he goes, yeah, I've kind of heard of this God. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe there's a possibility that this is a reality. That finally he goes, well, I need a test. Like, can you, can you give me a sign if you continue in verse 17? And he said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay here till you return. So then what happens is Gideon goes and he makes some, gets some meat and he gets some flour and bakes some stuff. And he comes back and he sets it on the rock here just, just before the angel of the Lord. And verse 21, the angel of the Lord is like, all right, you wanted a sign. Verse 21, then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. That's when Gideon was like, oh. <laughs> Dang, right? They're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. I can't believe that just happened, right? And, and I don't know why God did that. He was just kind of like, boom, I'm out. You're gone, right? <laughs> he does stuff like that. So, so now we go from, please, sir, I don't know if you're God, to Lord Adonai, I think you're the Lord, to, to now he, he, he understands. Verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God. That, that, that's how it even works in our own lives. Like many of us that, have, that, are, that are following Jesus now, that have trusted in him, there was some moment in our life, I know this happened for me, is, is that you've heard that there was this God who created the world, who loves you. You probably heard he's got a wonderful plan for your life, something like that, right? And, and this God sent his son Jesus. And if you had faith in his son Jesus, that you would have eternal life and that this God was coming and he was going to renew all of heaven and earth and we would reign with him forever. And you go, oh, oh yeah, whatever, right? Please, sir, <laughs> right? And then there's a moment where that same truth about God loving you so much that he would send his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins instead of you, that you would have eternal life with him and for all who would trust in him would live in a redeemed and glorified world with God. And you go, I kind of want that, but I, I just can't get there yet. That was kind of his version of going, Lord, I think it's you. Maybe this, maybe this concept is a possibility to be reality. And then it comes to a point where for us, whether it's in a moment over a period of time, some of us don't know when we got saved. Some of us go, it was around this time. But we do know this. At some moment, what happens in a conversion is that the eyes of your souls and the ears of your hearts are open to the point where you can see and hear God. And that truth of him sending his son as a substitute for you, that he died in your place for you, that you have faith in him and that you're now righteous because of him, you're all loved because of him, you're in God's family forever because of him and there's nothing you do to earn it, there's nothing you do to lose it, like all of a sudden you go, yes, alas, this is my God. And that's, that's what happens in Gideon's life. He, he's very excited. And what happens next is something that happens to us. It's like you, you finally believe in God and you think, oh, I knew nothing about God. I've never been to church. I know nothing about God. Do you know that, like, once you become a Christian, there's all these things that you didn't think you know about God, but somehow you, you know? Like, the stuff that you had heard about, like, now is starting to make sense. 
This is what happens to Gideon. And he freaks out because he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know God. I don't know God. Oh, now I know God. Wait a minute. If you see God face to face, you're going to die. Right? He's like, this is all bad. And then God speaks to him and he comforts him. Verse 23. But the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. He extends grace. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. And, called, and there he called it the Lord of peace. To this day stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abezerites. So he responds to God's mercy, the mercy that God extends him by building this, this altar called Shalom. And I, I know I keep using that word mercy, and sometimes we get mercy and grace confused. Um, they're different, and though oftentimes we see them together. Here's a definition, hopefully that's simple enough that we can, we can understand between the difference. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. We definitely see his grace here. That God, we receive grace. It's something that God gives us. We don't deserve it, but he decides to give it. But mercy is, is God not giving us what we deserve. Meaning we don't deserve pardon. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve for him to deliver us. But yet he delivers and he enters in. And he constantly shows himself throughout this book of Judges to show himself to be gracious, but also merciful. And then like Gideon, when you, when you see this, and your eyes have been enlightened and your heart's been wide open towards the love of God, you want to do something. And so he says, I'm going to build an altar, and I'm going to call this the God of peace. Why is that significant? Well, you've heard me say this before. Peace in the English word um, for, is tra- translation of shalom in English. It's too weak of a translation. We don't have a word for shalom. Because peace for us means that the, there's no war or bad things aren't happening. This means there's shalom and that there's rest, there's flourishing, that things are the way they're supposed to be. He goes, I know this God will do it, and he's doing it in faith of God. Because guess what? He's still in a cave in this moment. They have not taken out the Midianites. They have not received their crops back. They haven't received any of this. And so what it shows us, our God happens to be the one that sometimes when we receive his presence, it's more powerful in pain than it is when we're healed. Sometimes God shows up more in our defeats than he does our victory or poverty more than wealth. That somehow he comes low to the lowliest of the lowliest to begin to reveal himself. And there is when we find the joy in the Lord before he begins to do the work that he promises to do. And that, that's, that's where Gideon's at. And then God speaks to him. God speaks to him and goes, okay, here's what I want you to do now. Now that you're a follower, right, God does something in our life, indicative, God does something, and the way we live as followers of God is we respond to what he's done in our life. God has extended his mercy, and he's pardoned him, and now he's able to respond. And here's what God says to him, verse, verse 25. It says, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal and your father your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order uh, then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall you should cut down and here's what Gideon says okay God's called me to do something Gideon's response to this in verse 7 so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him 10 men remember I'm weak. We don't have anything. He's got 10 servants. Anyways, all right. Uh, so, the, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and told them the Lord. He did what the Lord told him to do. And then, but because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. <laughs> I love this. So Gideon says, okay, God says, get rid of these two. And if you weren't with us in week one, the Baal and the Asherah were the, the dominant gods in this day. And the people of God were worshiping, and God's like, get rid of them, because that's what happens. When you begin to trust and see God, your affections for him continue to raise, and therefore you have this new lens in which you see everything else. 
you see politics and vacation. I said vocation, but vacation too. <laughs> you see everything completely different. It's like, it's like this. You, you ever get ruined by friends who are experts at what they do in their industry? You, you guys ever get that? Like my, my friends who are artists or graphic designers, architects, like they ruin me. And I don't like any of the buildings I'm in. I don't like my home. I don't like anything, right? It's like, oh, you just host. Or, or like the, about a few years ago, I really got into coffee and, and, and got really into coffee and loved the beans where now I can't go back to other stuff. And that's no offense to anybody who likes certain kind of coffee. I'm not trying to be pretentious. I'm just going, because this is so good, I was like, I don't want that. Give me some water, right? There's just a sense where you go, you've ruined me. God comes in and he ruins you. <laughs> he ruins you. Because you, you, you begin to see who he is and what the way the world ought to be, and yet you look at the world around you and you're going, it's not like this. God, it's not like this. And he goes, turn it around on yourself. And you go, I'm not even like that. Like you, and, and then you have to go, okay, something has to happen. i got to do whatever I can in light of who this God is. If I see that he has given himself for me and his character is such that he's good and that his son has died in my place, okay, now my whole worldview changes, and there are certain things that are in my life that need to be removed. In this case, it was Baal and Asherah. These things need to go, and what needs to be replaced is ultimately a place in which I can worship the God of peace, that I can worship the God of love. And so for us, practically, that looks like that as a corporate for us. That looks like that individually for us, that when we have the lens of the gospel in our life, our worldview has to change. And the way we do relationship, the way we do sexual ethics, the way we do our life has to be radically changed in a way that begins to honor and resemble the one in whom we say we worship that means our whole life reflects the glory, the glory of the Lord. And he goes, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And he's like us. At this moment is when people say, I'm not sure if Gideon is a good guy or a bad guy because he does it at night when nobody can see him. Let me just tell you something. The world is not full of good guys and bad guys. The world is full of people like us. And sometimes we do bad things and sometimes we do good things. Gideon is just like us. If we were in Gideon's case, he's a new believer. He's going, all right, I'm going to obey you, I'm gonna obey you God. But man, um, there's these other guys around. <laughs> but I'm going to obey you. I'm going to go at night. But he doesn't. So you could say he had weak faith or not. It doesn't matter. He had faith. He had faith. And I don't think Gideon's story is like, this is a man of big faith. Yet when you read at the end, later in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's like the hall of faith list. Gideon's name's there. And what you'll see is, even now, He's not that huge of a faith the way the youth pastor describes him. He's kind of a normal guy just trying to obey God. Um, in fact, what you'll see next week, it all goes downhill. This is the best of Gideon we're going to see, by the way. Spoiler alert. Uh, it it kind of goes bad next week. But for now, <laughs> he's in, and he obeys God. To paraphrase this next section, what happens, the men come out of the town, and they wake up, and they go, what is this? Where's your son, Joash? That's Gideon's dad. Joash, where's your son? We're going to kill him. And Joash goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that I had these idols here in my front yard. I don't know what he did. Dang it. But, but he's my son. He's my son. And he goes, well, if Baal is really a god, let Baal contend for himself. Let, it, let him do what he wants with, with, with Gideon. And then it says the spirit of the Lord filled Gideon. And that he began to sound the trumpet. And all the people from Naphtali and Zebulun and these men from Asher, they begin to come to him. And the, the latter part here um, in verse 25, it says, and he sent messengers, verse 35, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and he went up to meet them. Now, it, it, it almost ends like, okay, now they're about to take out the Midianites. Debo's about to get knocked out, right? There's, th- th- this, is, this, is, this is about to happen. But like last week, there's this kind of random little piece that's put here. And that's kind of how, that's, 
how we're going to end, actually. Verse 36 to 40 is Gideon now having doubts. I'm so glad the narrator put this here. It wasn't the testimony Gideon was away from God and he trusted in God and he became a man of valor and he was good and, and life was great. It's like, no, Gideon trusted in God. He obeyed sometimes in secret. He didn't have the really public faith that maybe we wanted him to have, but he was this godly guy. He did his, did his job. And you know what? God had said he'd be with him and he was like, yes, God's going to be with me. Then he doubted a little bit. And there was this fleece incident where, where you read here where Gideon says to God, okay, if you're going to save Israel through me, can you show me a sign? I'm going to leave this fleece here. Weird. I don't know why. But I'm going to leave this fleece here made of wool. In the morning, make the, the, the ground around it be dry, but water be on the fleece. So he wakes up, the, the, the ground around it is dry. He takes the fleece and he wrings it out, and the boy goes, oh. Then he goes, wait a minute, that would have happened anyway. It's wool. Dang it. Okay, God, God. I know the dude, I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. But just one more time, God, can I, can I ask you one more thing? And God's like, what? And he goes, can you do the opposite? <laughs> can you do what wouldn't have naturally happened? And then God does it. And then the chapter ends. And you go, why would that be in there? And people say, he's doubting. Yeah, he's doubting. What man of God, what woman of God hasn't? He's just lucky enough that God did it. God doesn't always come through every time we ask him to show us something. We don't always have those clear empirical things. But what God always gives us is his presence. And why I think the narrator left us here, it reveals something of God's character. And that is God himself He's able to stoop down to our level. That he's able to understand that we have our doubts and we have our feeble faiths and, faith, and we're weak and, and we're, we're just humans. He doesn't let us off the hook, but he's able to draw near to us. In fact, one of the writers talking about this text said it best here, Ralph Davis. God doesn't mind humbling himself in order to bolster our fragile faith or a wavering grip on his word. He is so eager to do just that that he has provided a table instead of a threshing floor and bread and wine in place of a fleece. That he meets us. That he meets us. No matter where we are, that God meets us. And when we, when we, when we step back and we continue to ask, okay, where does Judges and this section fit in the greater, greater picture of the full narrative of the Bible? It should make, you, should already, you should be able to finish the sermon for me. That it's not that God... We need God to raise up another human deliverer as he does here. We've already, it's already been shown and it's going to be shown again. The human deliverer that God raises up is only temporary and he cannot change hearts. We don't need another man of God. We don't need another woman of God. We don't need another technology of God. None of those things can do what ultimately we need. That we ourselves find ourselves against the enemy. And our enemies is not the Midianites or the Canaanites. Our enemies is sin, Satan, and death. And all of this points to the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate judge, who would not now come and work, God working through a man, but it's far better than that, that God himself would become a man and the person of Jesus. And in becoming a man, that he would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he would promise to change the external as well as the internal. That he would promise to redeem the whole world as well as my heart. That he's a God that not only just lives inside of me, but he's a God who's present in all places and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That God is the only one who says, when you sin against me, I forgive you. And so that he could be the Lord of our lives, our true king and our true ruler and our true deliverer. Amen.